So just a few moments ago, we witnessed our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ being baptized. They have made a profession of faith in Jesus, surrendering their selves to God. Believing that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection takes their sin, and in the place of their sin, God gives them his righteousness, and they now stand before God, not as condemned sinners, but as righteous sons and daughters of God, the God of the universe. This is what they believe, and as a result, biblically speaking, you, you profess faith, and then you are baptized. Baptism is a sign and a celebration of the work of God in the life and heart of the believer. Now, when they were baptized, they confirmed their faith in Jesus in in the questions asked, and then each one of them had pronounced over them, it is our joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I think oftentimes we, we understand Father and Son pretty well, and we give lip service to the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes, as one pastor and evangelist says, we kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. He's the forgotten part of the Godhead. And so, today, we turn our attention to the forgotten part of this Godhead. Depending on your church background, you might be very comfortable with father and son. When we open our Bible, there are sections upon sections. We'll get rid of that paper so I don't lose everything else. Um... There are sections upon sections in the Bible about father and son, but there's not a systematic layout in Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit. And so oftentimes, unintentionally, we we almost neglect the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our teaching and in our, our focus. Or perhaps your church background is one in which you focus so much on the Holy Spirit that you lose sight of father and son. In both situations, I would argue that we are functioning in an unbiblical capacity. Right? The Spirit's job, as we are going to see in a little bit, is to point us back to the Son. And so if our focus is so much on the Spirit that we lose sight of the Son, we're, we're missing the point of God working. Right? Simultaneously, if we're so focused on the Father and Son that we're neglecting the Spirit, we're going to be neglecting the God in us. All right? So, today... I want to start off by reminding us that we are in a series and about to be wrapping up a series uh, called Basic Christianity. And the reason that I'm reminding us of that is because at no point today is it our goal uh, to have a comprehensive look at the Holy Spirit, nor is it a goal to put to rest 2,000 years of writing and debate on the working of the Spirit and miraculous gifts and those kinds of things. We're merely going to be looking at John 16 and a few other passages to have a basic level understanding of the Holy Spirit and what that means for us today. And in doing so, I'm proposing we answer three questions. One, who is the Holy Spirit? Two, how do we get the Holy Spirit? And three, what does the Holy Spirit do? Or maybe better said, what is the Holy Spirit's purpose? So, let's turn our attention to John chapter 16. Starting in verse 5, John is recording the words of Jesus. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Now, verse 5 starts with the word but. If you 
in Scripture or reading and you come across the word but or therefore, that should guide you to what comes before these words. Okay, so chapter 16 begins with four verses where Jesus is telling his disciples that he is leaving and they're going to be persecuted. And if you follow the words of Jesus, he's, he's saying, hey, yep, you followed me, um, but now when I leave, the people that you know, the religious friends that you have, they're going to turn on you. They're going to kick you out of your religious institution, and they're going to persecute you. In fact, they're going to come after you and try to kill you, and they're going to think that they are serving God in doing so. Right? Now, Jesus has talked to his disciples about the fact that he's leaving, so this is not new information. The disciples are grieved at the reality that they have given up so much of their human lives to follow Jesus. Right? They've given up time with family. They've given up careers. They've given up securities of different, different kinds. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm leaving, which is sad enough. But when I go, life is going to get very hard for you. And so, naturally, the disciples are full of grief. And then we come to verse 7. Jesus turns their attention like, hey, you are grieved, but... Very truly, I tell you, very truly, if you have an older translation, it might say, verily, verily. This is an oral culture's way of saying, hey, this is important. Right? If Jesus was saying this in an email, this part would probably be boldened, or bold. Um, but no exclamation point. He's not yelling. It's not angry. It's just, hey, listen to this. You are grieved, but I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, this is where we come to our first question. Who is the Holy Spirit? If it is good for Jesus to leave, right, God in person, like seen with our own eyes, touched with our hands, if it is good that God with us goes away and the Spirit is sent, he must be pretty amazing. But who is he? Right, now, the disciples are familiar with Old Testament teachings where the Spirit is referenced. The, the Spirit is not a new concept, but the, the idea that Jesus is going to send the Spirit is new. And it's not going to happen until Jesus goes away. So the disciples are, are a little out of, con, um, out of context right now. They, they don't have a, a way to process what Jesus is teaching them. And so we need to skip ahead because Jesus is teaching about life after his life, death, and resurrection. He's talking before his life, death, and resurrection. So if we look ahead in the New Testament to places like Acts chapter 5, where the uh, writer Luke is recording an interaction between a married couple and Peter. And they come to the church wanting to look good, and they say, hey, I sold this land for this price, and I'm giving everything to the church, everything to God. The problem is they lied. They kept money back for themselves, which is itself not wrong, but they lied the church, they lied to God, they lied to the Holy Spirit. In this passage, there is an explicit and intentional interchange of Peter saying God and Spirit at the same time. We see similar things in Paul, like in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Paul refers to the Holy Spirit of God, inferring deity, right, the godness of the Spirit. So at its most basic level, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. This is where, as Christians, we establish the concept of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what we are baptized into. Right? But more than this, our focus needs to understand that he's not just God, he is God in us. 
If we consider the Old Testament, the Jews met with God where? In the tabernacle. They went to temple. Father God, Yahweh, is in the temple. The Jews went to the temple. There was a priest that interceded for them, went and talked to God, offered sacrifices on their behalf. Right? We fast forward into the sending of Jesus. And Jesus is known as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus tabernacles amongst us. He is physically present. We could see him if we were alive at this time. But we have God, the Father, temple, Old Testament. Jesus with us, New Testament. And then Jesus ascends back into heaven and the Holy Spirit is sent into the lives of believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, the Holy Spirit is God, and he is God in us. But how do we get the Holy Spirit? Now, this passage, Jesus is a a little uh, brief on this answer. But I think this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is an important thing for us to address when forming a basic understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus doesn't make clear to his disciples, nor to us in John 16, when the Spirit would come or what that would look like. He just promises to send the Spirit. And so, at the end of each gospel, we read about Jesus being put on a false trial, wrongly accused, executed and rising again from the grave and eventually ascending back into heaven. Right? This is how the Gospels end. Then we enter the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, we read of the sending of the Spirit on the people of God. This moment is called Pentecost. Our church calendar still re- recognizes and celebrates Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. However, this is the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet been sent out. And so the way that it happens the first time here at Pentecost is different than every other time that we see the Spirit moving in the New Testament. There are similarities. There are things to watch and and to, to consider. But to think that the Spirit comes only like we read about at Pentecost ignores the rest of the New Testament. There's no things as the church is established in the later parts of the New Testament. There's no examples of uh, tongues of fire and congregations hearing um, all of these different languages at the same time. Like these things happen. These are spiritual gifts that's beyond our, our scope today. But it's not the same thing as Pentecost. This is the first sending of the Spirit. The first time believers receive it. But fast forward 2,000 years, how do we receive the Spirit? Well, the same as the people after Pentecost. We put our faith in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, And you were also included, hang on, in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you believe in Jesus, you hear the gospel, you profess faith. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. So how do we get the Spirit? We put our faith in Jesus. 
which means we believe in our hearts that Jesus lives, dies, and rises again for us. That the Father and him are in heaven as God, and he has sent his spirit to empower us to follow him. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we make him our Lord, our King, what he says goes, the spirit is sent into our lives. So he is God. He's God in us. We receive the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus. Now, if we had the time to go deeper into things, there are moments and times where we can talk about the way the Spirit moves and equips believers for specific situations that are very unique to that situation and not necessarily lifelong, ongoing gifts, but we don't have time for that. If you'd like to talk more, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'm going to go on tangents if we do. So, let's turn our attention to our final question. We're only about halfway through the sermon, so don't hear final question as we're almost done. Um, (laughs) Uh, What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? What is his purpose? Now, in our our passage today, uh, John gives two contexts, or Jesus' teaching gives two contexts for the Spirit's working. One is in the world, and one is in the lives of believers as a whole and as an individual. Based on how the passage is structured, we're going to start with the world. How does the Spirit work in the world? Look at verses 8 through 11 with me. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because the people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now the wording of the Spirit will prove the world wrong draws on like a courtroom kind of language, like a, like a lawyer trying to prove the guilt of the other person. The Spirit's working to bring about guilt or a conviction that they are in the wrong and need a consequence, except in, in our context, the Spirit's not the one metting out the consequence. The Spirit's doing the work of saying, hey, we're wrong, but I have a solution, Jesus. This is the work of the the Spirit in the world. So in verse 9, when it says he's going to convict, convict the world that they are wrong about sin, it's sin because people do not believe in Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking about a time yet to come. At this point, when Jesus is telling his disciples these things, he has not yet died and rose again and ascended to heaven. And so with that, there's a a contextual struggle for the disciples to fully grasp what is meant. But what Jesus is speaking of is a time in which uh, the Jewish people have to reconcile a legitimate Messiah and an empty tomb, or not legitimate Messiah, and the, the disciples steal the body, but the tomb is empty and there's no body to be found. Disbelief in Jesus becomes increasingly difficult in this time. Persecution arises because they can't stop it. But the reality is Jesus is no longer with them, but he was killed on a Roman cross. Like it, the, the world at the time watched this happen, but now Jesus is not here. And their unbelief as a result, as uh, D.A. Carson, who's one of the best commentators on the book of John, writes, he says, the world's unbelief in Jesus not only ensures that it will not receive life, It ensures that it cannot perceive that it walks in death and, in fact, needs life. The Holy Spirit presses home the world's sin despite 
their unbelief. The Spirit's work in convicting the world of sin is gracious, not judgmental in the sense that we think of today, but it is the Spirit awakening people outside of Christ to the reality of their need for Christ. And it starts with understanding that life apart from Jesus is in fact sin. Now Jesus continues and he convicts the world, the Spirit will convict the world regarding righteousness. Now this is not Jesus saying, hey, the world, there is righteousness in the world. Right? Jesus is pointing to a perceived righteousness by the world of the world and the lack of righteousness actually existent in the world. Jesus, in his teaching, often drew from the prophet Isaiah, and John likes to quote the prophet Isaiah. And so there's this really interesting connection between some of the things Isaiah says in the book of Isaiah and Jesus is saying here. Right? Isaiah, in chapter 64, verse 6 of Isaiah, um, he's prophesying, and he says, hey, the world's righteousness, the, the righteousness that the, the world around us believes that they have is like used menstrual rags, pointing a picture of like, this is garbage to be burned. Right? Not necessarily the persons themselves, but the actions. The, the understanding that you, you are good apart from Christ is sinful. Apart from Christ, we are sinners in need of Christ who takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And to think we can be righteous apart from God giving us his righteousness makes us stand condemned before a holy God. And this is where the Spirit then brings about a correction with judgment. The Spirit is not the judge. The work of Christ on the cross and defeating death and sin and Satan is where we come to this understanding of judgment. Because upon Christ's resurrection, Satan now stands condemned. He is damned to an eternity apart from God in hell. He just won't accept it yet. This is the reality of Satan and his minions and anybody who's following him. Right? And, and to be clear, as drastic as it sounds, you are either following Jesus or you are following Satan. With God, there is no lukewarmness. Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, you are useless. I'll spit you out of my mouth. You're too cold to bath with. You're not good. Right? You're in or you're out. And in a world, a culture, not unlike our own today, the idea of judgment, of black and white truth, of a biblical moral compass is really hard to stomach. But from thousands of years before Jesus walked the earth, God has been calling his people to live differently, to stand differently than the world around us. It is not in a sense of judgment that we are called to that. It is in a sense of showing the world what is better. Right? This is what Israel was called to do and they failed to do. This is why Jesus came. And Jesus knew that we wouldn't, after he left, be able to do it on our own, and so he sends the Spirit. And all of a sudden, we now have the power of God living inside of us to live in the ways that God has called us to so that the Spirit is at work in the world and through us to convict them of sin and unrighteousness and an impending judgment if they do not repent and believe in Jesus. 
A loving God is so loving that if you give your life to rejecting him and pursuing yourself, he will give you for all of eternity an eternity of pursuing yourself and rejecting him apart from him. God will give you what you want. Now, the Spirit brings about judgment. We talked about this already. And false righteousness and and pointing out sin, not because there is an unmerciful, ungracious God looking to smite us. He does it because God knows that the best way for this life to be lived and for all of eternity to be spent is with him, living in the ways that he has called us to. And do we believe it or not? The Spirit opens our eyes when we are worldly to believe. And then the Spirit is at work in the lives of the believers, what we'll see here at the end of our passage. The Spirit is alive and active in the, li- or active in the lives of believers in verses 13 through 15. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, this is Jesus speaking, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Spirit will guide us into all truth. What truth? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of biblical revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood by us as believers, centers on Jesus. Jesus is known about by the Father in, John, or in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world. The prophets talk about the coming Messiah. Jesus lives the perfect life. He fulfills all Old Testament prophecies. He is, in fact, the Messiah. He lives, he dies, he rises again. This is reality. Whether you choose to believe it or not is a different story, but this is real. And the Spirit works in the lives of the believers to help us understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is going to do. The Spirit helps us know and follow Jesus. All right, so Jesus puts his Spirit in us when he when we become believers. And that spirit empowers us to follow Jesus and live for him in the ways that he has called us to. But the spirit does more than that in the New Testament. We don't have time to unpack all of those things, but in your life group discussion questions in your bulletin, there's there's a list of different verses uh, that point us to names of the Holy Spirit. These names of the Holy Spirit aren't actually like names, they're attributes. They're things that the spirit does. For example, in our passage today, Jesus, towards the end, talks about the spirit of truth. And there he uses the term pneuma, which means breath or spirit, right? referring to like the spirit is coming. Right? But he begins the chapter with the advocate will come. I will send the advocate. Capitalized A, if you have an ESV translation, it would be capitalized H for helper. Right? Now, it's not like God is advocating for your every want and perceived need or helping you become like what you really, really want to be. God enters into you not to empower your work, but to bring you into his work. And there's a difference. If we expect God to give us what we want, we are going to be uh, woefully disappointed. But if we expect God to bring us into God's work and work in us to make us more like Jesus, we're going to find a joy that cannot be explained 
because the things that bring us joy are molded and shaped by God living in us. Right? But the Spirit is our advocate or helper. Right? He is helping us follow Jesus. Elsewhere, uh, <clears throat> we, we read of... Um, let me find my place so I don't tell you the wrong references. Uh, we read of God the Spirit um, giving us or empowering us to live and giving us spiritual life. That's in Romans 8, 11. He guides us uh, in two different ways, one in John 16, 13, and another uh, descripted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He intercedes for us. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 26. This means the Spirit of God living inside of us is praying to God in heaven for us. When we don't know what to say, the Spirit is interceding for us. This should give us immense reason for hope. Right? The Spirit seals us as a person and as a people of God. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The Spirit sanctifies us, Romans 15, 16. Meaning from the inside out where the Spirit lives, he's making us more and more like Jesus. In our thinking, in our actions, in our ability to love God and love others, the Spirit is working from the inside out. Now, there's much more that we can say and celebrate about the Holy Spirit, uh, but we don't have time to do that this morning, and that would take us out of a basic Christianity series. So, hopefully, today we paved or set a foundation on which you can safely and confidently build your understanding and interactions with the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is God in us. How do we get the Spirit? We put our faith in Jesus Christ. What does the Spirit do? In a most basic sense, he convicts the world of sin and unrighteousness and he empowers believers to know and understand and follow Jesus. So now what? I want to offer three quick suggestions as we wrap up our time. If you are a believer, you have the Spirit inside of you. Would you reflect on that this week? I don't know about you, but I can go days, weeks, and not really dwell on the fact that God is living inside of me. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and active in me. This is wild. Right? And Jesus says it is better that the Spirit is living in me than Jesus is present with me, physically. What does that mean for you? Spend time contemplating how the Spirit is working. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, would you consider how the Spirit works in the world to bring about an understanding of sin and unrighteousness and a coming judgment, our need for Jesus? Would you consider putting your faith in Jesus, believing in your heart that he lived, died, and rose again for you? He's your savior and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and he's king, he's in charge. If you do that, God sends the spirit into your life. If you do do that, would you tell somebody around you or come tell me so we can celebrate and pray together? You'll, you'll experience hope and purpose like never before. As we consider the Holy Spirit this week, this is number two, we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, even the ones we don't like. Um, we don't need to unpack that. I'm sure we can figure those ones out on our own. But... What I want us to consider is Jesus' words in John, in John 13. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
So as you contemplate the power of God living in you, would you contemplate how the power of God living in you helps you interact and respond and deal with fellow believers? Because the same God who saved you, sealed you for the same purposes, for his glory and your good, whether you like the person or not. So consider that. Each of us are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And finally, live dependent on the Spirit. And by that, what I mean is God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. He reveals himself to us in other ways, but primarily in the Bible. And the Spirit living in you illuminates your mind, grants you understanding of what this says. So if you're going to live dependent on the Spirit, you need to be in the Word. You need to be talking to God in prayer. Right? If we're doing those things, aware of the Spirit in us, contemplating the difference that the Spirit living in us makes this week, we will find in ourselves a new awareness of the forgotten God. Now, a quick caveat. Um, I see the worship teams here. I have to stop talking. Um, if you are dependent on the Spirit, if you're paying attention to the Spirit, uh, sometimes we confuse like, what we want and feel for the Spirit moving. And the only caveat I want to give you as you pay more attention to the Spirit this week is that the Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Trinity. The Holy Spirit points us back to Jesus. And so if a perceived need or want or something you're reading or listening to regarding the Spirit or life in the Spirit is void of Jesus or contrary to the Bible, that is not from the Holy Spirit. All right. God sent His Spirit to dwell in His people to know and glorify Him. Nothing can take that from you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and active in you if you put your faith in Jesus. And may that drive us out into whatever today holds. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending your Son who sent your Spirit to dwell in us. Would you help us to be more aware of you working in us and through us in our daily lives? Would you help us and teach us to be more dependent on who you are and who you've called us to be? God, as we step foot through these doors to go about whatever lies before us, would you help us to walk in obedience to you and your word in ways that bring you honor and glory, for that is where we will find our ultimate good. Oh God, be honored and glorified in the lives we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.